0: Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. August 19, 2021 Here's your host, Michael Washburn. It is a historic moment for the Biden administration, as the Senate, by a vote of 50 to 49, confers its approval on a $3.5 trillion budget resolution that paves the way for the hugely ambitious economic package Biden has long promised to make a reality. As Clara Foren and Ali Zazlev detail in an article on CNN, Senate Democrats cast their vote in favor of the package after a long series of so-called amendment votes that began late on Tuesday and ran well into the early hours of Wednesday. It is now up to the House to pass the budget resolution, and given Democrats firm control of that body, there can be little doubt about what is to come. Pillars of the resolution include massive spending on infrastructure, job creation, aid to families, and environmental programs. It is easily one of the most sweeping and ambitious domestic spending programs in American history, establishing a civilian climate corps, implementing universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds, and making community college tuition free for two years, among other provisions. The CNN article quotes Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying, The Democratic budget will be the most significant legislation for American families since the era of the New Deal and the Great Society. It is big, bold change, the kind of change America thirsts for. One might amend that to, the kind of change certain special interests demand. Tellingly, CNN's article does not quote a single Republican, though one might imagine that the 49 votes against the budget resolution perhaps do reflect the views of a somewhat significant constituency within America. The article does briefly quote Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, expressing concern about the price tag of the spending program, and suggests that this might potentially lead to a paring down of some provisions. It appears that in the view of CNN's authors and many of its readers, the liberal Democrat viewpoint is the only one that truly matters here. This package is what people want— Only eggheads with eccentric views would stop and ask what part of the Constitution says the government is to pay for a community college or universal pre-K. Not very many people today would cite or even know the text of the Tenth Amendment, which explicitly delimits the functions and prerogatives of the federal government and stipulates that any powers not specifically granted to it under the Constitution belong to the states or the people. Who cares about such nitpicking legal and constitutional issues when the mobs to which Democrat politicians are beholden are clamoring for more of this and more of that? The Constitution is just a scrap of paper written by dead white men. Americans can never get enough of true crime, and the persistence of the COVID pandemic has not denied them the spectacle of seeing the notorious Robert Durst heir to the Durst real estate fortune, put on trial in Los Angeles for the murder of friend Susan Berman. An August 10 Reuters article reminds readers how police, in 2000, found the body of 55-year-old Berman in her Beverly Hills home shortly after reopening an investigation into the disappearance and presumed murder of Durst's wife, Kathleen McCormack Durst, in 1982. Robert Durst is also the prime suspect in the killing of Morris Black, a neighbor in Texas, in 2001. The article dusts off the theory that Durst wanted Berman out of the picture because of what she might have been able to tell police about the fate of Kathleen. With or without Berman's input, there's no shortage of evidence against Durst. You may recall that Durst was the subject of the six-part HBO documentary The Jinx, as well as a stylish 2010 film All Good Things featuring Ryan Gosling as Durst and Kirsten Dunst as Kathleen. At the end of the jinx, Durst made a number of shocking statements while a microphone recorded him talking to himself, including, There it is. You're caught. And, What did I do? Killed them all, of course. The Reuters article further details how Durst's attorneys have taken a somewhat unusual step in putting the wheelchair-bound 78-year-old Who suffers from many ailments including bladder and esophageal cancer, kidney disease, high blood pressure, neuropathy, and osteoporosis, on the stand to answer tough and probing questions about his alleged role in Berman's death. The article theorizes that Durst's lawyers want to impress on people how frail their client is. Obviously, Durst is in poor physical condition and is not about to get any better. But his lawyer's move looks like nothing so much as a studied insult to the very concept of justice. It will be the crowning achievement of this serial killer's long and bloody run if he and his lawyers succeed in making non-evidentiary considerations, help determine the outcome of a judicial process, and deny justice to the many people Robert Durst's crimes have hurt. No discussion of the iconoclast in American literature can get very far without mention of William Sidney Porter, a.k.a. O. Henry, who was just 47 when cirrhosis of the liver cut short his troubled life on June 5, 1910. As I mentioned in my review for Book and Film Globe of the Library of America edition of 101 stories, the inclusion of O. Henry in the Library of America canonizes a vast body of work in which a certain type of story shines. Not surprisingly for such a prolific writer, some of O'Henry's fictions succeed better than others. But those in the former category have all the wit and dark irony of Ambrose Bierce, and their surprise endings pack as much of a wallop as anything Guy de Maupassant or Agatha Christie put to paper. And O'Henry's sensibility is distinctly that of a writer at modernism's threshold. His style is neither too formal nor too loose. He likes to slather on the descriptive detail never wastes a word. The Library of America collection 101 stories runs to 840 pages, the last 60 of which are given over to well-written, informative endnotes, textual notes, and a chronology of the author's life. O'Henry wrote at a furious pace throughout much of his career and produced a body of tales that puts writers with much greater longevity to shame. Given the escapades that filled his life, it is no surprise that his fictional personae so often are people on the edge, namely struggling writers, alcoholics, drifters, runaways, jilted lovers, desperados, and outlaws. Sometimes his protagonists are lawmen with a thankless job to do. Not seldom was O'Henry himself on the wrong side of the law. After his arrest on charges of having embezzled money from a bank in Austin, Texas, where he worked as a teller in 1894, O'Henry made a sudden decision to forego a court appearance and flee to Honduras, which had no extradition treaty with the U.S. There he hid out while weighing his options. It would take someone with deep knowledge of pop culture to answer this question, but this critic can't help wondering whether certain lyrics of another hard-living iconoclast, Warren Zivon, might be based on or inspired by the life of O'Henry. And I'm hiding in Honduras. I'm a desperate man. Send lawyers, guns and money. The shit has hit the fan. I'm hiding in Honduras. I'm a desperate man. Send lawyers, guns and money. The shit has hit the fan. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.